Welcome to Pomegranate Health, a podcast about the culture of medicine. I'm Mick Cabazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. The college was, in May, supposed to hold its annual congress. Of course, the global COVID-19 pandemic put a spanner in the works, but rather than cancel the event entirely, we translated as much as we could to be delivered online. Most of the plenary lectures are being recorded, and there are webinars you can participate in scheduled all the way through to September. Just visit rscpcongress.com.au for more details. One of the discussion sessions in the original program was to be chaired by directors of the Children's Bioethics Centre in Melbourne. The centre was established at Royal Children's Hospital to promote the rights of young patients and to support families and clinicians facing some vexing ethical questions. When can a child be said to have capacity to make autonomous decisions about their body? For those who don't, where should guardianship of a carer give way to that of medical professionals? And what if it's not the child's health at stake, but that of the community? as is the case when parents might refuse testing or prophylaxis for an infectious disease. All of these issues are tackled in the Essential Ethics podcast, hosted by paediatric respiratory physician John Massey and clinical ethicist Lynn Gillam. They are respectively the clinical lead and academic director of the Children's Bioethics Centre, and both also have professorial appointments at the University of Melbourne. The Essential Ethics podcast takes a case-based approach to demonstrate how problems in clinical ethics can be worked through in a systematic way. I've trimmed down a couple of episodes to share with you here, so let me hand you over to Professor Massey as he introduces a fictional but very timely case study. Lynn, there's a lot of information out there about coronavirus and about the importance of testing. What I'd like to do is present a scenario. And typical for for clinical ethics, it's a bit messy. So this is a five-year-old boy who's brought to the emergency department with high fever, lethargy, cough and breathing difficulties. And in the current era, one might reasonably expect that this could be coronavirus. There's no contact with a COVID-19 case or recent overseas travel. The boy has moderately severe autistic spectrum disorder, which is associated with a fear of medical procedures. His mother refuses a nasal and throat swab on the basis that it will severely upset him and set his ASD treatment back. So I guess the question to you is, is it acceptable to accede to mother's wishes and not to do a COVID swab? Mm. So it's a puzzle, isn't it, because we're used to thinking about people wanting testing. Uh, Let's start with first principles. Parents have the right to be the decision makers for their child. And in society, we essentially allow parents a very wide scope for making decisions about their children's well-being, about what activities they allow them to do, what sport they participate in, and so on. And in the healthcare arena likewise we allow parents a very well this is our question isn't it do we allow parents a very wide latitude or once the family walks into the hospital is the family now the parents now obliged to do exactly what they're told by the doctor and they get no choice so the way that we typically think about this is to think in terms of where are the limits to what parents can what decisions parents can make for their child And we set the limits essentially at the point where the parent's decision seems to be likely to be significantly harmful 
to the child. So uh, in ethical terms, we call that the zone of parental discretion. And this is, a, I guess, um, a protected space where we say it's okay for parents to make a decision that might not be perfect for their child. It might be suboptimal in some way. But provided it's not harmful, it's okay we can go with that, we can tolerate it, even if it's not what the doctor thinks is best or even if it's not what the doctor would choose for their own child. We let parents make a whole range of decisions. The point of intervening is the point at which carrying out the parent's decision would actually be harmful to the child. So in this situation, if we're thinking about the child to begin with, um, the nasal swab is not pleasant. So I haven't had one. I've spoken to some people who have. I know that it brings tears to your eyes and that's a sign that you've got the swab in the right place. So it is an unpleasant procedure. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it goes deep into the nose and then into the back of the throat and an older child or an adult will put up with it. Um, and, and they might put up with it partly because they want to know so people are fearful of having COVID. People are very fearful of giving it to other people. Mm. And so they'll trade off the discomfort mm. versus the value to them of knowing. Yep. But here we've got a young child with autism spectrum disorder who probably doesn't have that sense of why it's being done. Uh, so the capacity to put up with it for that reason is probably less. Um also, in relation to his autism spectrum disorder, uh, it's easy to imagine him getting much more distressed than another five-year-old mm. would. So his mother's position seems very reasonable on the face of it. Um, so the other harm question to think about is whether we actually need a COVID-19 test result in order to provide best care for this child. And I think that at the moment, as, as described, this is a, a child in the emergency um, department that if he required um, admission to hospital, he might need oxygen, and that low-flow nasal prong oxygen seems to have been for the vast majority of children around the world who've become sick with COVID. That's the level of therapy. Um, and if he, we knew he had coronavirus, um, would we give him particular antiviral mm. um, uh, the answer is no. There mm. isn't anything beyond supportive care. So I think I'm hearing you say that wouldn't make any difference to his management in hospital whether we knew he had coronavirus or not. His respiratory symptoms his, would be his managed. His illness for this individual, the answer is no. Okay. So that suggests that this child doesn't gain anything personally out of being tested and you can see that there are losses for the child in the discomfort, the distress, and to the extent that that's going to have an impact on his fear of hospitals and procedures and capacity to cope with medical care in the future, there's lots of reasons to not do it. Okay, so now we're in the pandemic situation. So we would actually be wanting to test this child really for the sake of other people, not for the sake of the child. So that's what we're balancing. Is the risk to other people bad enough that it would justify going against the parent's very reasonable assessment that it would actually be worse for her child to have a, a test um, in order to protect staff. So, again, contextual, John, this is a contextual question. I mean, Lynn, I, I, if, you, if the listeners can hear the rustling, and you know, and I think that that's Emmanuel Kant turning in his grave <laughs> because we're, we're sort of proposing using one person as a means to another's end, aren't we, which is always bad ethics is that what we're talking yes, about yes that's the, you can feel that angst i think in my voice 
certainly going on in my mind, we shouldn't treat one person as a tool to help other people. And the only thing that makes it okay to do things like that is the consent or agreement of the person who's being used. So if I agree to be tested for the sake of other people, absolutely fine, because I agree. But we've got a five-year-old who can't agree. The person who would agree on his behalf is saying no because it's would be in many ways detrimental to him, and we can probably agree with that assessment. So it's worrying. It is worrying, but I'm going to drop some other names, because I'm a shameless name dropper, and and you'll know perhaps who's articulated this, Locke or Hobbes or Mill, because, you you know, you've got personal liberty, personal liberty to do what you want, up until the point it's harming others. Yes. So where does that fit now? Yes, we have to take that into account. So, So how much harm do others would it cause if this child doesn't get a test. It certainly causes, um, I guess, uh, inconvenience of having to wear full protective gear, uh, which you wouldn't otherwise do. It probably makes managing things in the hospital harder, takes more time. Now, inconvenience is probably not enough, I think, to, to limit this mother and child's freedom to not have the test. What really matters then is whether that inconvenience also involves using up personal protective equipment and time, which is actually needed for other patients or needed, broadly speaking, for the healthcare system to protect staff. So I think that the key thing that matters here is how scarce our resources of personal protective equipment are. So at the moment we're at a situation... Uh Lynn, where the degree of PPE use, we'd have to treat him as if he was test positive, even mm. if he wasn't. Um, but I'm just going to dial the sensitivity analysis up a little bit. He's got sicker, needs to go to the intensive care, may need some respiratory support, so non-invasive or invasive ventilation, risk aerosolization, uh, more. Um, potentially knowing if it's COVID or if it's perhaps influenza, at this point, might benefit him mm. because we might use an influenza antiviral. Okay, so this situation seems potentially ethically different in two ways. One is you're now saying that there might actually be some benefit to him in knowing, uh, so that gives us more of a reason to test for his sake. Also, intensive care is a particularly limited resource, and I imagine that use of PPE in intensive care setting um, is also potentially a limited resource. So we might have also more reason in terms of protecting others from harm. I'm already thinking there's more compelling reason to test him now. And if he's sick enough to be in intensive care, he's probably already sedated or he could be sedated so we could make the experience less unpleasant for him. Is that possible? That would make me feel a lot better Yeah, I mean, I think the sicker he is, then you're right. If he was intubated, then he would be sedated and you'd be able to do um, your test. So I I think the first situation in the emergency department, perhaps even coming in for a day, might sit within the zone of parental discretion that it's okay not to do the test, accede to the parent's wishes, even though we might prefer to do so. Mm. But if he gets sicker, then that becomes more nuanced. He has capacity to benefit there's greater risk to staff. Could we override parental uh, requests not to in that situation? Yes, in the end, I think we could, either on the basis that the parent's refusal of testing has now got to a situation where it is causing harm to this child because there's something we need to know that we can't find out or because it's posing too much risk. 
to other people. So either of those grounds would potentially cover it. As Professors Gillam and Massey have described, consulting a clinical ethicist can help physicians work through such dilemmas with a consistent framework. This allows the child and parents to feel their choices have been respected, and clinicians can remain confident they are fulfilling their role as advocates for the child's best interests. The next case study raises the stakes to a level that might be shocking at first. This is a true story that's been shared with the blessing of the child's parents. Baby J is a 16-month-old boy who was born with a developmental abnormality of the lower leg called fibula hemimelia. In this condition, not only is the fibula shortened, but the foot and ankle will be malformed. In the most severe cases where mobility is greatly impaired, the recommended clinical management involves amputation. The earlier this happens, the more opportunity a child has to adapt to a prosthesis. Baby J has a more moderate grade of deformity which could be corrected, but only with a number of involved surgeries over his childhood. I'll let Baby J's surgeon describe the confronting course he was asked to take. Chris Harris is an orthopaedic surgeon at Royal Children's Hospital, and he's hosted by John Massey and Lynn Gillam, who you've already heard from. In the past, uh, length was a challenge to orthopaedic surgeons, but is not such a big challenge anymore. Um, and so in fibula hemimelia, whilst the leg is short and the treatment for it typically involves lengthening, the key thing before you do any of that is to ask a question, is the fact you might not have the right shaped heel or so many toes or part of the foot not there, is it ever going to work as a foot and ankle? And so as orthopaedic surgeons, when we meet these children, one of our first assessments is, do we think the child is better without their foot and ankle? in which case we'd do an amputation to remove it and prosthetic fitting, or are they better with it, where we'd go down a line of reconstruction, so correcting deformity, lengthening, and that's quite a big journey. It's it's number of operations. It's not an easy journey. Between the terrible foot that everyone would agree should go and the perfect foot and ankle that no one would ever suggest amputation, somewhere between those two, there is a line. And every surgeon's got a slightly different place for that line. And our biggest challenge is normally when we've got a child with a, a foot and ankle that are, that are not great and we feel they should have an amputation. Our biggest challenge is when the family say, no, we don't really want an amputation. Whereas in this particular case, it was the opposite way around. And for me, this was a foot to keep. So we'd taken the parents down the route of reconstruction and they were saying, actually, we want an amputation. And that really challenged a lot um, about how I make decisions and, and how, what values I have. And at that, that, that stage, that's where we approached Lynn. How did you feel when the mother of this child said, do an amputation? As surgeons, we're very used to parents not necessarily agreeing with us, but in one direction. Normally, the foot that we think is really never going to work well as a foot, that we're thinking right from the beginning, probably the child would be better without this foot and with a prosthesis. We're going to sow the seed of this is this is our dilemma, this is what we think, and maybe this foot is not good. And then as we get to know the family, we'll explore some of that and l- try and lead them, I suppose, down this pathway that we feel is the right treatment. This case was interesting because their initial journey was not really how we would normally do things. So in this particular case, the child had come to a different team 
and they treated the foot like we would treat a club foot, a congenital talipes equinovarus, with casting. And as part of that casting, the patient had been sent um, for making an AFO, a plastic splint, and it happened that the orthotist who was making that splint was also a prosthetist, had got uh, this understanding that we had sent them along to, to talk about whether an amputation. So really, the amputation side came about not from us, but it came through another route. And in fairness to the to the orthotist, to the prosthetist, they see these children so good, so functional with an amputation and a prosthesis, that to them, they look at it and say, well, why would you reconstruct go down this big complex journey when these patients can be so good, whereas we look at it the other way around. Why would you amputate when you can save the foot? What, what does the other side look like, though, in terms of the reconstruction? Because that's not a single event, is it? No. So I mentioned earlier that there's a scale, and it really depends initially on what is the position of the foot and ankle. So that would be um, some form of operation to correct the position of the foot and ankle. And typically, but not always, it would involve um, a frame, an Elizaroff frame, a circular frame around the leg. And then having got all that good, you would be looking at doing lengthening, and typically that is also with an Elizaroff frame. And when you do lengthening, the child is going to be in the frame for months, three, four months or so. And so it's a, it's a big journey for the family. And so that frame, I think, for people who aren't familiar, sits outside the yes. leg with spikes, essentially, yeah, going wires that, into the leg. Yeah, wires that skewer through the, the soft tissues into the bone to hold it. It looks rather un, unpleasant. And how many times, uh, uh, you know, because a kid's going to grow, so mm. how many times are they going to have this sort of surgery before you, you can stop and say, well, your leg's good enough? Yeah, it depends, John, on um, the severity of the shortness. So some that in the, in the simplest um, types of fibular hemimelia where you're going to do a lengthening, they may only have one done, and that may come at any age, and like five, six onwards. But for others with the more difficult types, three, four operations, and all that goes along with that. Not just an operation where you do it and you wake up and it's all done, but an operation where the treatment is ongoing for weeks or months with a frame or some sort of splintage or some device like that. My understanding was that it was what, around 15 or 18 months that the family were pushing for Yeah, before the then, but we, in a sense, we have the clock ticking for us is not too bad until the child is at walking age. And even with these foot deformities, they can still walk. But we like to, if we're going to do an amputation, we like to do it under the age of two, uh, f roughly, because we don't want the child to remember any of it. So the t clock's ticking... Two's your cutoff yeah. for that idea of the child integrating their leg into themselves and personality and having a, some prostheses to be functional. So it looks like, Chris, clinically we're, we're weighing up uh, hopefully a single surgery for a good amputation yeah. and perhaps multiple prosthetic fittings over the years as the child grows. Definitely multiple prostheses. Versus potentially multiple operations going through into the teens for yeah. uh, this baby. Yeah. And the other thing and that the parents made the point in this case, and they were very clear about this, is that despite doing all this, never a normal foot and ankle. So any of the surgery still doesn't give the child five toes, still only got three toes. And you could argue that there is a cosmetic side to that. There's an acceptability side. So in society, what is seen as more acceptable, the child with the prosthetic leg or the child with two or three toes? And so the parents also came from that perspective.
It's sounding like that these are together, intelligent, thoughtful, and you know, well-read and knowledgeable in terms of their capacity to make this request or make this decision. Would that, that yes, a, a definitely. fair assessment? So, Lynn, this is a, is a conundrum uh, because I think people feel very strongly in lots of directions, one perhaps about function, but other people about we do everything we can to, to save a leg, and that's what we as doctors, but I think people in the community might think as well. So how did you approach this, or how do you feel about this? So, yes, it is a conundrum in many ways, John, and there is a strong instinctive view for everybody to think amputation is a terrible thing, and that's the thing most to be avoided, so it's surprising when parents or anybody would in fact want an amputation. Um, then the, I think there's another strong feeling around the extent to which it should be the parents say. So one possible view is that these parents are bringing up this child and they need to be the ones to make the call. But others might say, well, parents shouldn't interfere with a child's body to that extent if it's avoidable. So there's a number of strong and different positions. So what what then is in the, the toolkit, if you like, from the ethicist? Mm. Chris has got a large box of hammers and saws and screwdrivers, <laughs> but we also have a set of tools in our, in our toolbox. So, you know, how did you start diving into this and trying to tease it out and come to sure. a balanced So I decision? think that the two main tools to pull out, which, which we would often pull out from our ethics toolbox, are the idea of the zone of parental discretion and the concept of the child's interests and trying to promote the child's interests. So if we use that idea in this context, it seems to me quite clearly that a decision for amputation or a decision for reconstructive surgery could in, would in fact fall within the zone of parental discretion. And it's entirely possible for reasonable people, I think, to have uh, a different view about some of the things Chris has been talking about, uh, the importance of uh, functioning. So if this child has the, goes down the reconstructive pathway, if I've understood correctly, Chris, he would, as an adult, be able to walk, but quite not possibly not able to run. Yeah, to variable amounts. And that, that's a good point. How much could he participate in sports? Um, that is that is one component, yeah. Whereas if he has an amputation and a prosthesis, it's entirely possible that he could be up and running. Yeah, and we, we've seen that in the Paralympics, particularly fibula hemimelia. They are incredibly highly functioning. Of course, prosthetic dependent, but in that prosthesis, incredibly highly functioning. So we're thinking that in some ways the person we're responsible to becomes the child as uh, an adolescent or a young man and that they're happy with the decision that was made for them. I think that's a really important point, John, that uh, both the surgeon and the parents are in the position of making a decision for somebody else. And a decision needs to be made because this little boy less than two years old can't make a decision for himself and so the one who really matters is that child and later adult that the child will become. Then we've got to think about the child as a child during his childhood, but also during his adulthood. So there's an awfully long time frame to be thinking about. And there's really almost incommensurable things like function, appearance, body image, self-esteem, um, sense of bodily integrity. All of those things are in the mix and it's really hard to compare them and to weigh them 
against each other. So in some ways, it seems to me this is the classic example of the type of decision that's within the zone of parental discretion. Chris, uh, I'm sure as an orthopaedic surgeon, you have to make some big calls. You're perhaps chosen the specialty because of your ability to make decisions and make the right one. How does this sit with you, the zone of parental discretion, and you're letting somebody else make the decision? It's, um, it wasn't a concept I'd really come across till I spoke to Lynn. And um, I suppose in orthopaedics, we are interested, we look at outliers. So is this is this come across to us as weird or strange that normally when we sit down with the parents, they would understand, they would get it, that we want to keep the leg. And so when you see someone who isn't like that, you start thinking, well, are these parents, at, if they're outliers, why? And can we trust their ability to make that decision but then they're the child's parents um in orthopedics i suppose we see ourselves a little bit as the protector of the child as well but maybe not in a pure way because we're still we're used to getting our way so we believe our way is the way that protects the child but that's not necessarily right and so when you see this conflict it challenges both of those things are these parents are they really in touch with reality or is the doctor in touch with reality that's what that challenges you in I think one of the challenges is that is that the parents somewhere maybe need to feel validated in their decision making. So it works brilliantly where the doctor and the patient parents are in line with each other because the parents validate the doctor, the doctor validates the parents' decision. We all go into it together, hand in hand, feeling, hey, we're doing a really good thing today. Um, the, the challenge is when the two, when you don't feel validated, so you still feel that this is the right thing to do, but you, you feel unsupported in it, you're on your own. And that's not such a good place to feel. One of the concepts a chap called Joel Feinberg discussed was a sort of sense of an open future. Mm. And, and maybe that's where that middle ground of not doing anything too definitive now mm. comes in. Is that a concept, Lynn, that you think could be helpful mm. in this case? So the idea of a child's right to an open future is a very powerful idea, and I think it's often a very important idea that helps you make a decision. So the idea is that the role of parents, and in fact anybody who's taking care of a child, is to leave the child's future open to be whatever the child wants it to be as far as possible. And that sounds like a fantastic idea, and insofar as that's possible to achieve, it's very worthwhile to achieve. The difficulty is that in many situations, and this is one of them, making a decision to, that tries to keep open the future is not so easy to do because, for example, um, a decision to wait to see what the child wants and you might be made, waiting quite a long time has its own consequences. So that child's going to still have those years of waiting to see whatever waiting to see would look like. And often it's the case that as you wait, you might even be closing off avenues that you could have taken. It's not always so easy to go uh, to go back to the starting point, so to speak. Chris, you might want to say a little bit more about what would be the implications of waiting and doing yeah, nothing. It, is that even possible? It is in, the challenge, I suppose, in, in waiting is that there are negative aspects to the child you know starting uh, child care and and then all that and then it wasn't just about that but it was about dad was going to work interstate mum would be with the child on her own it was all these difficult all complexities feeding in to the situation so to try and separate it into one pure decision like the child's childhood it's about more than the child it was about the the, the parents actually said to me it's about the families 
um, future. This is, it's not just about the child. It's about our family and how we relate and how we face life together as a family unit. And that was another very interesting thing. And all credit to the, to the parents. They were very switched on about these things. They just presented uh, concepts that we don't normally have to face. Lynn, are you comfortable that Chris is describing something that we often trumpet here at Royal Children's is family-centred care, but sometimes the child's left behind while the needs of the parents are met. So family-centred care sounds fantastic, and often is, but it has some hidden complications. What I heard Chris describing there was quite, I think, a sophisticated understanding of what family-centred care is about. So for the child who's under your care, Chris, that child's interests matter, and you might even say that's the primary thing that matters. But we know that um, the extent to which that child's life will go well depends a lot on the parents. So the family are in it together in that sense. These parents will have to bring up this child, make help him make what his life is going to be. If they're committed to an amputation pathway and they want to make that good life for him, that, that's going to make a big difference to his life. If they were committed to the um, reconstructive pathway and wanted to make that good life for him, that would also make a difference. It does seem a problem to put parents on a pathway that they're not committed to when it's going to be them who has to make this a good life for the child, particularly when they're young. I think that's a, a really an important uh, point, Lynn. Chris, you were hinting, though, at, at something in that, in amongst the family centred care, about the childhood, because you know, a lot of people would think, well, childhoods it's about going to school, it's about preparing yourself for your, for your adult life. And so you might embark on reconstruction to get yourself ready for your adult life. But what about the childhood? So does that influence you? Yeah, it's you? a good point, John, because we are um, doing something by doing surgery, say we're doing reconstruction, with a view to their future life. But at the same time, life is about the now. Each one of us lives in the now, don't we? And so you, by doing stuff, you rob some of that now for the child. When you put the child in plaster or put them in a frame or put them in hospital, you take some of that now when they don't go to, ch- um, to school or don't interact or, or, or add to that the stress you add to the family. That robs them of some of their now. And so they, they will lose some childhood. They will never get back again. So as surgeons, and I expect all doctors, but particularly as surgeons, we're very keen particularly with um, conditions that require repeated surgeries, to try and minimise our robbing, what we perceive as robbing their childhood, because they will not ever get it again. Chris, how did you feel, though, on the day doing the surgery, knowing that you're aligned with good sense, with the parents' wishes, supported by colleagues and ethics? Did you feel happy going into theatre that day? I did, John. Um, I, I think I still had this a uh, slight um, struggle, a battle going on inside about the, you know, the, the two sides of the argument. But, but in many ways, that argument had already been had. We have a weekly um, case conference meeting in our department where all our team would get together and we invited Lynn. And for me, that was really important because it allowed me to bring this dilemma that I had, that I was struggling with, with into my, the group of my colleagues and let them share it. And, and then they could either stand with me or they could say, Chris, no, don't do this. We'll stand with you either way. But they, that, that was really useful for me because at the end of the day, um, I am the one that carries out the amputation. So 
that that's um another thing that as a, as a surgeon you you, you want to come to work knowing that you you want to drive into work knowing that you're about to do something really great something you're really going to be pleased with and look back as i've just done a great thing i think you still the challenge is that we as surgeons we see ourselves as reconstructors of people who take something that's not good and make it better particularly in orthopedics because we fix broken stuff that's what we do we make broken stuff good or the body actually makes it good but to try and understand that concept that by doing something Something that physically seems destructive, I'm being constructive. That's that's the thing, and I'm I'm understanding that. And so we brought the family to the the case conference, and we had a really good session. And from that, I felt yes, we can proceed and do the amputation. We did the amputation. The child is highly functional. The family are happy with their decision. They've stayed happy with their decision. And as one would expect, he's just tearing around with his prosthetic leg. So, so so far, and hopefully for good, it seems uh, a happy ending. That was Chris Harris ending this episode of Pomegranate Health. Many thanks to Lynn Gillam and John Massey for letting me share the Essential Ethics podcast with you. Its production is made possible by Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. You can subscribe by searching for Essential Ethics in any podcast aggregator app. It can also be streamed from the website of the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne. Go to rch.org.au slash bioethics. You'll find guidelines on the law and ethics around informed consent and decisions about life-sustaining treatment. There's also a link to the textbook When Parents and Doctors Disagree, edited by Professor Lynn Gillam. Another podcast I recommend is called Ask the Specialist, created at the Menzies School of Health Research, Royal Darwin Hospital. In this, leaders from the Larrakia, Tiwi and Yolnu peoples respond to questions from doctors about effective patient and community-centred care. They explain how guardianship over a child might rest with a grandparent or senior aunt, rather than the child's direct parents. Adults, too, might defer decision-making about their own participation in a medical intervention to a community elder. You'll find a link to that show and many other resources at our website, racp.edu.au slash podcast. You can also contribute to the discussion forum or send me your thoughts via the address podcast at racp.edu.au. I'm Mick Cavazzini. I hope to hear from you.